Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Lubbock podcast. Our mission of teaching people to love God by showing them how much He loves us starts right now. Well, church, this morning I have the privilege of sharing with you a message that for me has been born out of a lot of contemplation and prayer. And it's one of those things that I think God has really been impressing on my heart. And then in turn, I believe uh, he was asking me to share with the body. And that is the idea of being sure. Sure about who we are in Jesus. Sure about what we're to say when we're asked hard questions. And sure about what we're, ne- what we're to, supposed to do next when we're faced with a fork in the road. Because we live in the year 2019. And honestly, I think you'll agree, the world looks drastically different than it did even five or ten years ago. Seemingly everything has changed. And with it, and this is to our detriment, the world's definition of truth. Everywhere it looks, it seem everywhere we look, it seems like it's harder to find absolute truth. We live in a day of what I would call liquid truth. And for some reason, it's ever-changing, and it's based on the circumstances or the flavor of the month. How about this? Have you ever heard someone say, that's not my truth? And you're like, what? Because as Christians, we, we know what truth is. We know truth is Scripture. We know that, that when we look and we say, hey, that's north we have a, a factual basis for that claim that we can say, no, the compass points north because of magnetic fields. And when we say 2 plus 2 equals 4, we realize that that's proven because of mathematics. And yet now, with the, the new math that we have, it's like 2 plus 2 equals 5. And some people are like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And we're like, what? That doesn't make any sense to what we've ever heard. But now we have this common core math, and it's, oh, it's terrible. So you've heard somebody say, well, that's not my truth. Or um, unfortunately, between the right wing and the left wing, now we've had, you know, we've had hashtag fake news. Or are you saying, those aren't real facts. But what is a fact? It's, it's a true statement based on something. And so as we see that we have this, shifting world and this worldview of what truth is, we want to be sure. Because the saddest part of where we see our society going is that while you and I, as adults or older folks, may have already made our decision about what's right and wrong and what absolute truth is, it's going beyond us and it's affecting the youth and our children that are being raised up. And now... It's not a light smattering. You know, when you, when you look at what your kids are being faced with or what they're being taught or what they're being presented through educational media or YouTube or TV or movies, it's not a light smattering. It's full-on indoctrination. And I was thinking about this because it's now to the point where some of us that are older are starting to look like antiquated bigots and people that are committing hate crimes because we stand upon the directives and the truth of this book. You know, I used to not place much stock in the quote, it only takes one generation for the Christian faith to be forgotten and eradicated. 
I would say, no, I don't think that's right. But the more I've thought about it and the more I've dwelled on it and the more I see the influence of the world upon our young people and the influence of the world that is seeping in through uh, television media and through, uh, through YouTube and through the, the world politics and the way the system is set up, that's not far off. Let me say that quote again. It only takes one generation for the Christian faith to be forgotten and eradicated. And now I can't get that statement out of my head because I think of the parents of young ones in here and what they're being raised to see and what they're being raised to believe and how we as Christians and parents and leaders are having to combat those ideas and come against those things. And that's my heart is through this message, we want to be sure because nearly every new TV show or movie out there is pushing to have a homosexual or a transsexual character portrayed in it, represented. And if, and it's a big if, if a Christian is represented or featured in this show, then usually they come across as super judgmental or they come across as cruel and mean and unaccepting. Typically a Bible thumper versus someone who would love like Jesus. Someone who would love someone back to life, who would say, listen, I don't agree with your point of view, but I accept you for who you are. And I'm going to continue to live my life to show why, we, why we're different in our belief system. And hopefully, through the Spirit of God ministering to them through the gospel that we're preaching with our lives, that conviction would come and that change would happen in their lives. But that's not how the world portrays us. Because... When we see that we're living for Jesus, we're asking for conviction to come in the world, but the world doesn't want conviction. It wants offense. Everyone's offended at everything these days, and it's, it's sad. You know, we grew up in a, the generation before us grew up where, where they just, whatever happened, happened, and they, they, they took it as it was, and jokes were jokes, and, and now you can't say anything without offense, and you can't go anywhere without the influence of the world seeped in to what we, we want to enjoy. How many of us watch a TV show, and you're like, I'm really enjoying this, and then that, <laughs> then that part comes up, and you're like, oh. You know, and as Christians, we have to make a decision, especially as Christian parents, if we're watching it with our kids, do we turn it off? Or do we accept it? That's a hard thing. That's a hard thing to choose. Because then you're starting to narrow what we are able to watch. If you, if you turn everything off, and then you have to have that conversation. But that's the world we live in. It's shifting. It's unstable. We need to be sure. It was brought to my attention this week that Franklin Graham posted on Facebook about a high school girl who is being punished with in-school suspension. One morning when she arrived at her school... Some of the walls were decorated with LGBTQ flags and posters. And she looked at them and she goes, oh, that's cool. You know, I would really love to see if I could have equal representation with Bible verses. And so she made some verses on posters and she put them up and it, it wasn't done in an act of defiance or, or meanness or a spirit of anger. It was done just saying, hey, you know, you have your view. I'm going to put up the opposite view or, or not even necessarily opposing view. I'm just going to put up love. When she went to lunch, she came back and there were teachers pulling these posters down. And she ended up getting in trouble. And 
what they told her was that she was targeting the gay-straight alliance. She couldn't stand up for what she believed in, and, and yet the other party had a, had a greater voice, had a louder voice. And the travesty, the travesty of the situation goes on because as some people were sharing Pastor Graham's status on Facebook, they were getting flagged by everyday users who said that this content is offensive or inappropriate. And so those users were having their accounts temporarily suspended to the point where they couldn't share that post. We're in the day and age where when we speak for God, when we speak for righteousness' sake, it's starting to get flagged. It's starting to be considered hate speech. And Pastor Ben has said it so many times from this pulpit. At some point, there might be a time where they say, don't say that anymore. And he said, well, I told Napoli, I'll, I'll write you from jail, you know, because if that's the point, if that's where it comes to, that's where it comes to. We have to be willing to stand up. And it, it blows my mind because when you think about some of the atrocities, and they are atrocities that have been happening across the nation with school shootings or um, like the nightclub that was targeted in uh, Miami, you know, those are all called hate crimes. But then you look at this, the church shooting that was here in Texas, and that's not referred to as a hate crime. That's referred to as a man with a mental illness. And yet, walking through a church, picking off women and children and, and men who were too old to fight for themselves, that's a hate crime. And the worldview, what I'm saying and what I'm presenting is the worldview of Christianity and of their side is not the same. It's changing. Truth is shifting in their eyes. And yet in our eyes, we have to be sure. We have to be able to stand firm on what we believe. You know, just mentioning Facebook makes me think of technology. And, um, you know, we're here, like I said, in 2019, and I can't imagine what technology is going to look like in five to ten years if the Lord tarries, because... Um, you know, it's crazy. To some of y'all, I might be like a spring chicken compared to some of your as' ages. And to others, I might be a little old and crusty. You know, I'm looking at some of our younger people in here. But if you're my age or older, you know, we, had, we didn't always have cell phones. We didn't always have the internet the way it is today. Google. We didn't have Netflix. We didn't have YouTube. We didn't have Wi-Fi. And while those things are so convenient, the advancement of technology has changed the way we communicate. It's changed the way we get our news. It's changed even the fact that we have to check the credibility of the source of our news. And, and don't get me wrong, I love technology. I love to be able to, to pick up my phone and you can ask it and get an answer for virtually any question. It's like the, the library of Alexandria on your, at your fingertips. Or this thing can talk to TVs and smart speakers and video games and iPads. And while that's all a blessing, we realize that de- technology can also be a detriment. Because if we're not careful, we can become mindless drones to the point of digital addiction. And that's something that we all have to watch out for. And we have to realize that technology in and of itself is not wicked or evil. It's a tool. And tools are never wicked or evil. It's all about the hands 
that they're in and the ones that they're being operated by because this device, on this device is access to hundreds of thousands of hours of Bible teaching and solid pastoral advice, uh, commentaries and books and, and um, authors from all over the ages who have written great spiritual works that would edify us. There's also probably on here nearly every language known to man, the Bible. We can access it through this phone. And, and it's a tool in my hands. But also on this phone is the access to countless atrocities that are too wicked to mention. Websites full of sexual immorality and deviance that the enemy of our soul would celebrate gleefully. And so the tool of technology can be a powerful weapon in the hands of our enemy because the enemy of our soul, just like we talk about truth, just like we say it's a shifting world, he operates in the currency of deception. He wants to take us and our kids and he wants to stir up doubt in every arena of our faith. The Bible says in John 10.10 that he wants to steal, kill, and destroy He wants to destroy our faith and the faith of the next generation. John 8, 44 says he's the father of lies. Well, do you know what combats a lie better than anything else? That's the truth. And that's why we have this, the ultimate truth-telling device, the sword of the Lord. And that's the hope of my teaching this morning is that I want to provide us with a biblical basis for being sure in at least three areas. A biblical basis for being sure in at least three areas. Number one is where we get our answers for hard questions. Where we get answers for hard questions. Uh, You asked me, what's a hard question? Well, one is why do good things happen to bad, or why do bad things happen to good people? Another one is what does the Bible say about homosexuality? That's a hard question, is it not? Or why does God allow babies to die? I mean, if you've been a, for me, I've been a pastor now for several years, and we've heard all of those, and and a lot of them are heartbreaking. Why did this happen to me? Those are heartbreaking questions, but the truth is, is we know where to get our answers. So we want to cover where we get answers for hard questions. Number two, we also want to cover how we know what to do next in life how we know what to do next in life. And then third, we want to know how we finish well in this life. How we finish well in this life. So let's start with number one. Where do we get answers for hard questions? Well, for some of us, you're like, hey, you just mentioned it. You've been holding it up the whole time. Duh, Pastor Josh, the Bible. Well, for some of us, that's obvious, but for others, it's not. According to a Gallup poll, the number of Americans uh, who believe the Bible is the literal word of God has shrunk. It's down to 24%, which is the lowest it's been in a 40-year trend. Now, others have the belief that, you know, maybe they don't believe that the Bible is the literal word of God. Others believe that The Bible is inspired by God, but it's not to be taken literally. And so you have people that are like half in, half out. And then you also have 
a rising number of people who claim the Bible is a collection of fables, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. Only 24% believe that this book is the literal word of God. And I have to not question the Gallup polls, but what they were asking is, they were asking people, how often do you interact with your Bible? And this is saying that they interact with their Bible three or four times outside of church uh, in a three or four month basis. And I'm like, wow, that, that's not very much, <laughs> you know, considering what our call to do daily is. That's not very much at all. And so that 24% may even not be what we're thinking that is. Christian, we have to be sure about this, that this book, this Bible that you're holding in your hands or you're looking at on your phone, however you're ingesting it today, we have to be sure that this is the foundation of our faith. This is the love letter of Jesus, our God and Savior. This is a collection of 66 books written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by 40 different authors over a time period of 1,500 years. It's full of rich history, fulfilled prophecy, and wonderful life-saving doctrine. It's the best-selling book of all time, and it's addressed to you and to me and to anyone who will listen. Show me any other book in the history of this world that has come together like this book has, that is infallible, that has prophecies in it that have been fulfilled. The mathematical improbability of Jesus fulfilling even eight prophecies from this book, it's, the whole thing is like filling Texas up to our knees in silver dollars, painting one of them red, throwing it in, and then having a person walk around blindfolded, reaching down and picking up that silver, that single silver dollar. It's just, it doesn't happen. I think we had a math professor that used to come to the church, and he was like, it's like winning the lottery 44 times in a row. And he was all geeking out, and I, I loved it, because he was like, he was, he, you just saw that math made him come alive. You know what's so cool about this book? It never needs tweaking. And, other, and unlike other religious texts you may have heard of, it doesn't ever get revised. It doesn't go back every so often for updating because it offends people or it didn't include a certain type of people group. In fact, this book can stand up for itself. And I know I've referenced this story before, but I can't help but geek out about guys like Lee Strobel who began to investigate the Bible as an atheist now only to be regarded as a, as a believer and a defender for the faith, writing multiple best-selling books like The Case for Christ. Let's talk about what the Bible has to say about the Bible. You've turned to 2 Timothy 3. Let's look at verse 16 and 17. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know what that first word is? All. Can you say that with me? All. Every word from cover to cover, all of it is given by God. That word in the Greek, when it says inspired by God, that means literally God breathed. It's like he exhaled and out came his word. He, uh, from his spirit, from his spirit. And if we're going to believe that, we have to believe that it's all there for a purpose. 
my heart broke as I was studying for this message and I was reminded of Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers. You know, he looked at the Bible and he said, I really like portions of it, but I also don't agree with everything. And so he took a penknife and he took some glue and he started to go through and he cut out everything that he didn't agree with. Things like Jesus's miracles, things like, like um, revelation prophecy, anything that he just thought didn't belong, he took it out. And what he ended up with was an 84-page manuscript, manuscript that now the Smithsonian holds and they, they view it as a document of history. But you know what happens when we start to cut away the Word of God? We don't get Jesus Savior anymore. We get Jesus the philosopher. We get Jesus the wise teacher. He goes from being God to being a good man. And that's not what we need. And because while the church needs good moral teaching, or while the world needs good moral teachings, it doesn't need that in the long run. What it needs is a Savior. And when we say all Scripture, we mean all because it's there for a purpose. It's for doctrine. It's for our belief system. It's for reproof and correction. It has the authority for us to look and go, hey, I was going the wrong way. I'm going to correct this, and I'm going to go the other way. It's for repentance. And then it says it's for instruction and righteousness. It's the roadmap for righteous living. You've probably heard this anagram, B-I-B-L-E, basic instruction before leaving earth. That's what this is. It's a roadmap, and it's a love letter. It's, it's the revelation of who Jesus is. The Old Testament, all of the saints of the Old Testament are going like this, and they're all pointing forward toward the cross. And Paul and Peter and John and everyone that wrote the New Testament, they said, let me tell you about my Savior. And they're all going like this. And they're all pointing backwards because that is the crux of what this Bible is about. It's about our need for a Savior. It's about the greatest rescue mission ever embarked on in this lifetime. And Jesus did it. He hit the mark. He yelled out, it is finished because he did it. And we have salvation because of that. That's why this book is so important. Now, God did his part by supplying the Bible. Now, we have to do our part, much like you're doing here today by receiving the word. And we need to do that collectively in a church setting, but we also have to do that individually. You know, I was thinking of some person who says, well, the Bible doesn't affect me that much. And, and I, I came across this letter in a magazine. It said, a critic once wrote a letter saying, over the years, I suppose I've gone to a church more than... Uh, a thousand times. And I can't remember the specific content of even one sermon over those many years. What good was it to go to a church then a thousand times? Well, the next week, someone wrote that same magazine and said, over the past many years, I have eaten more than a thousand meals prepared by my wife. I can't remember the specific menu of any of those meals, but they nourished me along the way. And without them, I would be a malnourished, sick person. The Bible will do its spiritual work in us if we let it. But it's not enough to come and say, oh, I have the Bible. We've got to crack it open. We've got to get into it. You know, I used to know we can't just have osmosis and sleep on it. That's not how it works. We have to let it change us. I was thinking of when I was a youth pastor and you know, a lot of times I was a youth pastor and we thought, oh, I want to tell them about David and I want to tell them about Daniel and, and Moses and Jonah and I want to make these stories come alive. And what I realized is that they're not going to necessarily remember the content of every message. 
But what my heart was to do was to play crazy games, to instill memories, and then to do milestone things like pizza parties and and baptisms and, and dedications and to say, hey, you know, just like we're studying in Wednesday night with Abraham, as he goes to a place and God does something amazing, he builds an altar of worship to God. And when he's traveling and he comes back to that same place, he can say, this is where God moved in my life. And so what we want to do as Christians is as we study the word, we want to create milestones and memories. You know, right in your Bible, I had a struggle. I had a trial and, and I wrote it in on this date, such and such. And this is how God moved because that's what God does. We go through a trial and we cry and we go, God, help. He's never, he's never slack in answering. He, he always comes through one way or another. And that's the beauty of establishing those milestones. And I love that story because it's like, maybe you don't remember the specific content of every message that you've always, you know, that you've heard as you've gone in through, through life. But what you've done is you've received it. And that's what we do when we get into it uh, through our devotions. And so not only is the Bible something that we can stand on, not only is it a gift that God has given us that we need to get into, but we also have to be Bereans. Uh, you can look in Acts 17 if you want. Go ahead and turn to Acts 17. I'm going to describe what a Berean is. Say amen when you're there. Acts chapter 17. Somebody was a quick turner already. That's awesome. Acts chapter 17, verse 10. It says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night, away from Thessalonica to Berea, And when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So this is a highlight of Paul on a missionary trip. He's gone from Thessalonica now to the town of Berea and in his custom, he goes into the the synagogue to, to teach But what he was saying is that these Bereans, they were a little bit different than the people that he had previously taught to, because not only did they come ready to hear what God had to say, and they were enthusiastic about it, when Paul finished teaching, they went and they said, listen, I need to check it out. I need to make sure that what he says is right. And Christian, that's an important part of who we are in the the word, is that we want to be Bereans, is that everything that's presented from a pulpit or a podcast or, or somebody speaking into your life, you need to make sure that what it is is right. Because, you know, there, there is that time where you might be on listening to the radio. You might hear somebody say something and all of a sudden there's that little tinge of discernment going, what? You know, or, or somebody says, you know, just so you know, the Bible says God helps those who help himself. Oh, nay, 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 my friend, that is not scriptural. Or cleanliness is next to godliness. Hello, have you ever seen John the Baptist? He was wearing bear or camel skin. He was like Chewbacca. So we need to make sure that we test the scripture. We need to make sure, you know, even Pastor Ben says that, even, uh, you know, as, as he teaches, make sure that what you hear from the pulpit is righteous. The one way we can be sure that the Bible is the place we can go for all of our tough questions also is to make sure that we get the whole thing. How do we know where to go for hard questions? We want to make sure that we get the whole thing. Acts 20, 27 says, I, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole 
counsel of God. Church, I encourage you that if you ever find yourself going to a church where every teaching seems to teach the exact same thing, every teaching seems so repetitive, and it's never like, hey, turn in your Bibles to this place, or um, make sure that you're getting from Genesis to Revelation, because that's where we get the answer for all of our tough questions. Where do we get the answer for hard questions? Right here, the Word of God. And we, we want to be able to say for us and the next generation that we are sure and we stand upon God's Word. Number two, how do we know what to do next in life? How do we know what to do next in life? That, that can be a tough thing, especially when you're coming to a big decision. You know, and, and a lot of times you're like, I just want God's will. Here it is, and I know it's a very broad-spectrum answer, and this is something when we talk about the will of God, we could, we could delve into it for weeks and weeks and, and, and lots of hours of study. Let me, let me give you the broad answer today. We want to stand on the Word of God, and when it comes in terms of next, what to do next, we want to walk daily with Jesus. We want to walk daily with Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow him, follow me, let him daily pick up his cross and follow me. Ephesians chapter 4 says, I beseech you, therefore, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. Constantly, over and over in the scripture, God is calling us to just walk with him. It's something that we can do on a daily basis through our devotions, through how we think about him, through starting and saying, hey, I'm doing a Bible reading plan. That's a way that we can walk with Jesus. Micah 6, 8 in the Old Testament said, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? And it says, but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I reread those verses in the message. I thought it was really pertinent to share. Check this out. It says, But God's already made it plain how to live, what to do, what God is looking for in men and women. It's quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. That sounds very much like love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then be compassionate and loyal in your love. And this is where this is my favorite part. And don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. That's Micah 6, 8 in the message. You know, I was starting to think of Bible characters who are perfect examples of this, and I couldn't help but think of Abraham. And if you're coming on Wednesday nights, we're studying Abraham and his life, and while we realize that he had his faults and his shortcomings, we know that because of his daily walk with God, he became the father of our faith, that he was justified by his faith, that every day God said, hey, trust me, take that next step, walk with me daily, rely on me. Moses was the same. We talked about him yesterday in our men's fellowship. He walked with God, and, and while he was a real man, we, we, we appreciate the Bible for painting Bible characters as real people. He was humble before the Lord. It's a daily commitment to ask God for a fresh filling of his Holy Spirit to walk with him. Are we going to stumble? Yes. Are we going to have those days where we don't feel like it? At times, yes. 
But what we need to do, Christians, as we commit is saying, God, daily, I'm going to walk with you. I'm never going to falter. Even Romans 13, it says, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Amen? Then the, the night is far, is far spent, the day, is, uh, sorry, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in reverie and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh and fulfill its lust. Wake up, dress up, clean up, grow up, walk daily with him. How do we know where to get questions for hard answers or answers to hard questions? Stand upon the word of God. How do we know what to do next in this life? Walk daily with Jesus. That's how we can be sure. Which leads us to point number three. How do we finish well in this life? How do we finish well in this life? Well, you'll notice that I'm having a progression here because we stand upon the word of God. We walk daily with Jesus and we finish well by running hard after God with all of our might. We run hard after God with all of our might. If you read the New Testament, Paul, who is credited for writing nearly half of the New Testament, he loved to use athletic illustrations. He talks about athletes a lot to get his points across to believers. Well, why do you think that? I think it's because he knew we were competitive people. Have you guys ever been to a church picnic with the folks from Calvary Lubbock? <laughs> I've never seen the, the fear of God in so much in Soph's eyes. It's, it's like, come on, you know, <laughs> not in his eyes, in my eyes as I was looking at his face because he's like, you do it, you know, and he's just a competitive person. That's pretty awesome. And then Pastor Ben's like, we're going to win this. But Paul knew that and he referred to athletic illustrations because he knew our nature and he knew that when it came to the shortness of this life, the brevity of this life, that we needed to be actively pushing forward towards God and the reward to come. And I want to encourage you today, are you just starting your race? Run hard after God. Endure. I see some young people in here. This is a call for you. Run hard after God. Don't let anyone Turn you to the left or to the right. Stay in your lane and run with everything you've got. And then for us that are, are maybe in the middle of our race, don't get distracted. Don't let this world trip you up. Don't get ensnared by the world, as it says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. We'll read it in a second. What we want to do is endure. We want to keep going. And then if you are nearly finishing your race, if you're nearing the end of your race, keep going You've pushed this far. Don't give up. Run hard after God. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so, in e which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what Jesus is? He's our example. He's the one who already completed the lap, and he did it knowing what was in front of him. It was the cross. 
He's already completed it. We don't have to go to the cross. He paid that on our behalf. All we have to do is follow hard after him. We run after Jesus. And I love this verse because it says, let us lay aside every weight. And then it says, and the sin. And so we realize that there are weights in this world that weigh us down. I, as I was studying for this message, I came across a, a story of a woman who dreamt specifically about this verse. She had had a, a dream that the rapture was happening, and, and while she was looking around, all of her friends started to shoot up into the sky, and she went up, and all of a sudden, as she went up, she got caught. And she looked down, and there was a rope tied to her foot. And as she saw what was tied to the rope, it was all of her worldly possessions. And she woke up in a sweat, and she was freaking out, and she started to go, God, do I have my things, or do my things have me? Because I was telling for service, I like this phone. It's an iPhone 8 or whatever, and, you know, it's like I treat it like Smeagol. It's my precious, you know. But you know what the truth is? Is that while I like this phone and it's my connection to the Internet and all that, in two years, I'm going to hate it. <laughs> in two years, it might have a crack down the middle, and the software will probably be slow, and I'll be cursing Apple for slowing down their stuff, so you have to buy the new product, you know, because whatever it is, possession-wise, these things are temporal, and they're going to break, and they're going to fade. And, and yes, being good stewards, it's great to take care of what we have, but when it has us, that's where it's dangerous. And so we want to make sure that we lay aside every weight that easily ensnares us. Don't get so caught up with, with internal affairs that we forget the, the future. One last scripture, if you want to turn there, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we'll start our descent. It says in verse 24, Do you not know that those who run, those who run in a race all run? But one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. They do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and I bring it in subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul says, I run. Now he knew that the readers of this text would know what the Roman athletes would go through. That in order to be in the Roman athletic games in the Olympics, you had to train for at least 10 months before you even got to set foot in the arena. You had to train for 10 months and so Paul, when he's saying this, contextually, he's saying, train, go hard, do this, because he's like, listen, I'm announcing the race, but I'm also running the race. And he says, I'm running against all y'all, but more importantly, I'm running against myself. And you're like, wait, what is that? How does that work? Well, let me, let me give you an example. I, um, I was watching recently the NFL Pro Day. And this is where they bring the guys who are going to go from college to the pros, and they bring them in, and they put a, a, an ungodly amount of weights, and they say, lift it as many times as you can. Let's see how strong you are. And then they put them down, and they say, let's see how, how, how tall your vertical leap is. And then another event that they have them run is the 40-yard run. 
and they want to see their speed. They want to see, especially like wide receivers and, and running backs and, and cornerbacks, they want to see how fast they are. And what's so cool is as I was watching this, they let these guys go multiple times. And so I was watching and the guy got the first time and they said, that's a pretty good one. And they said, okay, now what we're going to do is we're going to take technology and we're going to superimpose him running again. And so all of a sudden he started running and you could see his previous um, shadow running and this guy pulled out in front of it and he ran faster. And they said, okay, now he beat that time. So they let that past ghost go and they said, they're going to run it again. And every time he kept beating that, that first shadow, that first silhouette. And I started to think of how that applies to us is that every day as we lay aside the weight that so easily ensnares us and as we continue in Christ and progressive sanctification, that every day is an opportunity to, to do that lap again. And every day is a race against ourselves. And the hope is that, is that we are beating that shadow, that we're running harder every day, that we're moving faster, that we're getting closer to God because that's the run, that's the race that we run that wins that prize. And that's what God is calling us to do. He says, run with endurance, run with purpose, run with me in sight, looking unto Jesus. We can be sure that we'll finish well by running hard after God. As we close this message, I want to say the word sure again, because I want to make certain that we are sure in Jesus, that we're sure of who we are in Jesus, that we're sure of where to turn for hard answers or hard questions in Jesus, that, that we know what to do next on a daily basis, and we know what life should look like as we press toward the finish line. We want to stand upon the word of God. We want to walk daily with Jesus and we want to run hard after him because the opposite of sure would be unsure. And we look at this world that is shifting sand and we look at even what the Bible says about a man who is double-minded. It says that he is tossed about to and fro by the waves, and he's unstable in all his ways. I heard a pastor who said, it's like a, it's like a, a sprinkler who, the word is vacillate, you know, and he's, he's going well, and he's going the right direction, and he's running hard after Jesus. He's sure of who he is, and then all of a sudden, he's unsure, because what happens next is all of a sudden, he, he goes back to his old life, and then he has no foundation. Jesus said, the man that's like that is like building his house without a foundation on a shore. And when the wind and the waves come up, all of a sudden it knocks his whole structure down. Church, we want to be sure. We want to have that firm foundation and then we want to build upon that as we press on towards God. I think of the future generation and what that means for our kids because of the bombardment that the world is throwing at them in order to make, it, make them more like it. We have to be vigilant. The church is a sleeping giant. We have to find our voice to tell the world, no, that is not acceptable. We cannot watch the next generation deteriorate into carnality and oblivion. 
I want to leave you this morning with an observation that a writer observed about the Apostle Paul. The author of this little snippet is unknown, but William MacDonald included it in his book, True Discipleship. In describing Paul, the man who we know is sure, he said these words. He said, He is a man without the care of making friends, without the hope or desire of worldly goods, without the fear of worldly loss, without the care of life, without the fear of death. He is a man of no rank, country, or condition, a man of one thought, the the gospel of Jesus Christ, a man of one purpose, the glory of God, a fool and content to be reckoned a fool for Christ. He must speak or he must die, and though he should die, he will speak. He He goes before awful counsels and enthroned kings to witness on behalf of the truth. Nothing can quench his voice but death. And even before the knife has severed his head from his body, he speaks, he prays, he testifies, he confesses, he beseeches, he wars, and he blesses anyone who will listen. That's a man who's sure. And I pray that while we have the opportunity to live in this life that we are like that, not necessarily having to die for our our faith. It might come to that at some time, but to be sure of who we are and then to impart that to the next generation. Because you know what it says about Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4? He says, I have fought the good, good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. Today, church, let's be sure of the rock on which we stand Let's be sure to walk daily with Jesus and let's be sure to run hard after God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the word today. I pray that it went out and it did its perfect work. I pray that you'd minister uh, even beyond the words that I said. I pray that it was what you said that ministers and, and makes a difference. I thank you for those that were here today. And I, I do pray for that strength to stand, that strength to walk and, and, and not to get distracted and that heart to run hard after you that only can come by being in your spirit. And so today, we follow after you and we love you. We thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Josh. I hope this message has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. If it has, we would love to hear your story of how it has impacted you or especially if you responded to the invitation to receive Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior. To get in touch or to receive more information, please contact us by phone at 806-799-2227 or send an email to calvarylubbock at hotmail.com. Again, that phone number is 806-799-2227. Also, if you want to partner with us financially to take the gospel to West Texas and the world, please click on the Donate button on calvarychapellubbock.org. Thanks for listening to the podcast. May God richly bless you.